It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. 924 North 25th Street, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That address marked the site of the Oxford Apartments, a 49-unit beige apartment complex located downtown. To those who walked by, the modern building appeared to be a well-kept residence within the otherwise run-down neighborhood. But for those inside, it was a different story. The tenant in Unit 213 made apartment life almost unbearable. Neighbors frequently complained of putrid stenches. Others reported hearing strange noises, such as buzzing saws and thuds, throughout the night. But it wasn't until the night of July 22, 1991, that the actual nightmare was revealed. Two Milwaukee police officers knocked on the door of Unit 213, responding to pleas for help from a man that escaped from within, who claimed the man who lived there had tried to kill him. The peculiar tenant allowed the officers inside and consented to a search. One officer opened the refrigerator. Inside was a human head. As the officers investigated the scene, pulling out drawers, opening closets, and looking inside boxes, they found the contents of a human slaughterhouse. Inside apartment 213 of 924 North 25th Street lived the Milwaukee monster, Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Dahmer's childhood was less than ideal. Growing up with a mother who battled depression and a father who was busy with work, Dahmer felt neglected. At a young age, he developed a fascination with animal carcasses, frequently collecting and dissecting remains that he had found. Dahmer's obsession with animal corpses soon escalated to humans, and at 18 years old, he would go on to commit his first murder. Between the years of 1978 and 1991, Dahmer brutally murdered 17 men. He dismembered their corpses, committed acts of necrophilia, and for many victims, cannibalized their remains. Mike Dubis was a homicide detective with the Milwaukee Police Department and searched Dahmer's apartment at the time of the arrest. He joins me today to discuss how he came across the shocking discovery his work alongside detectives Dennis Murphy and Patrick Kennedy, and the lasting impact this investigation has had on him to this day. I've been a detective for two years and assigned to the homicide unit for most of that. I was assigned to Squad 126 with Detective Patrick Kennedy. And on that fateful night in July of 1991, um, we were at our desks when the late shift captain came up and told us that he had sent out a, a violent crimes detective to an address on 25th Street 
to an apartment where the officer said they had some pictures, some Polaroids of dead bodies. And before that detective arrived, the officers called back and said that they now found a human head in the refrigerator. Uh, this was all pretty bizarre, even for the homicide unit. And the captain asked Detective Kennedy and I to drive up there and see what the heck was going on. So, Captain, uh, when you when you got yeah, that so call, when you got that order, then to your point, it was so bizarre. What were you talking about at that moment? What was being discussed between you and the rest of your colleagues as you were packing up to respond to this call as to what you might find at the house or what this might all entail? Well, we do have uh, evidence kits, paper bags, pla uh, plastic gloves, stuff like that that's in the car. Um, we made sure that we took extras with us. I grabbed a fresh steno pad when we left the police station. And as we were driving up the road, I talked to Kennedy about uh, what we might do, what we might encounter, who would do what inside the apartment. When we got up to apartment number 213, I remember walking into the apartment, seeing Jeffrey Dahmer uh, lying on the living room carpeted floor, handcuffed behind his back with an officer standing over him. I got down on one knee. I remember looking him in the face and saying, Mr. Dahmer, is there anything I can do for you? Uh, his comment was to get the officer off of him. And I looked up at the officer and I said, hey, you know, you want to you wanna get him up? You want to get off of him? And he said, uh, go look in the refrigerator. And I walked over to the refrigerator. When I opened up the door, I saw a human head in a cardboard box on the bottom of the refrigerator. I remember closing the refrigerator to this day, looking at the officer and says, don't get off of him. Captain, uh, at that point, I, when you when you saw that, can can you describe your feelings in that moment? You know, was it was it shock or horror? Was it had you ever seen anything like that in your years as a homicide detective? Well, this actually came early in my homicide career, and to that point, I would say I had not seen a human head decapitated from its body by by another person. Um, I was kind of in shock. Uh, I was kind of like, I don't believe it, but it, that's what we had, and that's what we went with. I remember calling the captain back and telling him exactly what we had to that point. Uh, given rules of evidence and, and searches, um, we pretty much just held on to the scene until the lieutenant got there. Uh, we came up with a plan that uh, I would stay with the scene, and Kennedy would go and start talking to Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, shortly after they arrived at the police administration building, uh, Pat Kennedy had obtained permission from Jeffrey to search his apartment for evidence, and uh, that's what we started to do. Um, in a homicide case like this, um, in the state of Wisconsin, a, a dead body is the property of the medical examiner's office. Um, the police department doesn't normally go rolling bodies around or, or going through people's pockets and stuff until the medical examiner gets on the scene. So for the most part, we waited for Drs. Jensen and Stormel to arrive. Once they got there, we started a search of the apartment in a counterclockwise uh, circle, uh, starting with the refrigerator. Uh, I opened it up and I showed uh, Dr. Jensen, who was the lead medical examiner at the time, 
Um, all that was in there really was that box with a human head in there. Um, opened up the freezer above, and there were three resealable packages with meat inside. Emily, I'm a, I'm a hunter. Uh, I've packaged deer meat and ducks and pheasants. Um, this wasn't meat that you would get at the grocery store. Uh, and uh, we kind of figured it was probably human flesh. Uh, and later on, it was determined that it was. Um, but there were three packs in that freezer. As we moved around the kitchen, it was a small kitchenette on the end of the living room. We found several boxes, cases, four gallons of juice inside each case. It was muriatic acid and hydrochloric acid. And that led us to a small chest freezer about three and a half, four feet high. Inside the freezer, there were three packages right on top that were the shape of a, of a large chicken or a human head. Dr. Jensen tore open some of the wrappers on one of the, one of the pieces and determined that, in fact, there was a human head inside that wrapper. And at that point, we put it back, closed up the freezer, and determined that the whole freezer was going to go to the medical examiner's office for the purposes of them thawing it out there and seeing exactly what they had inside. Uh, I can tell you eventually that I did find three human heads and other body parts in there. We continued around the room, uh, get into the living room area. There wasn't much there evidentiary. There was a sofa. There was the infamous black table, plastic table with a fish tank on it. Um, he had some pictures on the wall. As, as we continue to move around the room, we, we get to a doorway to Jeffrey's bedroom where the uh, Polaroid pictures were first observed sitting on top of the dresser. The, we first take note of the, the pictures on top. We opened up the first dresser drawer, and I believe in total there were 84 Polaroids found at that spot in, the, in that dresser. The Polaroids contained pictures of men, uh, most of them naked, many of them dead, in states of being cut apart, states of being posed in different positions. Just, just bizarre stuff. Exactly what I expected to find when I was told a human head was in the refrigerator. It was going to be bizarre. Um, but the rest of the dresser drawers down had a lot of personal items, uh, driver's licenses, ID cards of some of Jeffrey's victims. Um, there were a lot of doctor appointments and prescriptions for narcotics um, throughout the drawers. Uh, now, somebody could take drawer number two and throw it in a cardboard box and seal it up and say, contents of drawer number two is in the box. Um, but that's not the way to do it. Um, I took each piece of paper, each prescription, each doctor's appointment, each piece of uh, identification and, and uh, gave them a separate line on a police inventory so the district attorney and investigators would know exactly what each piece was. And it, it, took, it took days to get through each drawer. There was a giant syringe, much like um, you'd use for basting a turkey. Uh, Jeffrey eventually told us that he used that to inject uh, the heads of some of his victims to keep them in a comatose type state. Uh, as we move beyond the dresser, 
right next to it, there was a cardboard box for a computer. We were looking in everything, and inside that cardboard box, there was some paper for uh, computer software, and underneath that, there were two human skulls. They were painted with a sort of a white, gray, black uh, modeling paint. Uh, almost looked like they were models, uh, but after the doctors looked at them, they determined that the the insides of the skulls were different. You know, if you make a model and you make five models in one press, they're all going to be the same. These were different, and they started thinking that these were going to be different people. In fact, they were. Right next to that, the, the most famous piece in Jeffrey's apartment was the blue barrel. It was sealed. It was probably the source of the smells in the room. Uh, in my years as a police officer and then as a detective, um, I had been around people who passed away, uh, people who had died and, and been in an apartment or in a house for several days, and there is a certain smell that goes with that. Uh, Jeffrey's apartment didn't have that smell. Um, it had a very sweet chemical smell. It wasn't, it wasn't a deodorant, it wasn't a, a perfume, um, but it was a very sweet chemically smell, uh, probably uh, from the different uh, acids that he was using. And uh, Dr. Jensen determined that whatever was in that barrel, because we couldn't move it just with our bare hands, whatever was in there, given the boxes of acids that were in the other room, in the kitchen, uh, that we weren't going to touch it, uh, we opened up a couple of the windows at that point, and we stepped back for probably over an hour, waiting for the Milwaukee Fire Department and a uh, private uh, hazardous materials company to come and remove that blue barrel from the apartment for us. It was kind of ironic that one of the pictures that shows up in a newspaper is the private um, hazardous material company they're in their self-contained breathing apparatus and their special suits. And there's Detective Dubis holding the door for them in my jacket and tie. <laughs> it was like, okay, you know, <laughs> we, uh, we just uh, did, did what we had to do at the time. So the barrel was taken away. Um, there were, it was later determined by the doctors that there were uh, three bodies in that blue barrel and those bodies uh, through the crime lab were matched up to the three heads that were found in the freezer. Again, it's uh, most homicide investigations start off with a body and then you have to figure out who done it. Um, in this case here, we had our suspect, we had to figure out who all the victims were. Mm. Um, continuing to move around the apartment uh, after we get past the blue barrel, uh, I remember there was a uh, a two-drawer filing cabinet. You and I would have tax papers and personal files and stuff inside of it. I opened it up and there were human bones separated by size, separated by form. Um, there were arm bones from between the, the wrist and the elbow and the elbow and the shoulder in one section. Uh, there were small digits, fingers and stuff in another section. There were some cardboard bags that had uh, hair, hair inside, and in the back there were a couple of more skulls. And again, in the state of Wisconsin, anything that's related to a human body is a, goes with the medical examiner. So 
uh, all of this stuff, the medical examiner's people recovered. Um, the the things in the dresser drawers and that, that was all mine, but the, the body parts all went with the medical examiner. Once we leave the two-drawer filing cabinet is Jeffrey's bed. Uh, there were no sheets or anything on it. Um, the mattress on top had obviously had blood stains and other liquids stained into it. Um, between the mattress and the and the box spring, however, there was a uh, large uh, machete. And uh, I believe that as the story went, when uh, the officers first saw the head in the refrigerator, Dahmer made a, a run for that back bedroom. And had he, had he gotten in there, I believe that the, the situation would have been completely different. Um, we needed Jeffrey Dahmer at that point in the investigation to help identify victims. It would have been terrible if, uh, if he would have got to that machete and something else would have happened and we went ahead to him to talk to. Um, but we recovered the, the mattress and the box spring, um, samples from the wall. Once we walked out of that bedroom, there was a, one more closet right in front of us. In the closet, there was a large aluminum stew pot with a cover on it. And I looked at the Vulcan Air and I remember saying, what could possibly be in here? Given everything we've already seen as we've moved around the apartment, Dr. Jensen looking right next to us. Um, and I lifted off the top of the stew pot and there was a plastic lid from a five gallon pail. Um, on top of that lid was a pair of uh, man's hands and a penis and pubic mound um, all sort of set in an altar type situation. Um, I know that later on uh, in his interviews with Detectives Murphy and Kennedy, um, Dahmer would say that he would uh, masturbate to that stew pot, that bucket uh, with those items inside of it. Only, only to happen to us, um, there was a clothes basket up on the top shelf. And I looked up and I thought, what else could be here? And I remember pulling that basket down off the shelf and it sort of flopped open. And there weren't any body parts in there, but the stench from the rotting of, of human fluids on that bedding was so bad. Um, that uh, the Vulcanair and I both uh, left the room um, <laughs> grabbing our breath as we did. Um, eventually, when we went back into the room to recover that uh, laundry basket, it went right into a plastic bag and we sealed it up and got it out of there. But uh, of all the smells that went that day, um, that was the one that, that was really made you gag. Um, to this day, uh, I can still close my eyes and remember the sweet smell of those chemicals. And if I go back to the evidence room where it was all stored, it's still there. Um, I've been retired for a few years now, um, but I'd be willing to bet if I walk back in there now, I could smell that apartment. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. 
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I have a list of questions as you were describing okay. that. If I can just ask you a few, the first based on what we've just covered just now. The first is you mentioned that you obtained Dahmer's permission to search the apartment. Why would the discovery of the decapitated human head not be probable cause enough to search the rest of the apartment as well, law enforcement or are the laws there in Wisconsin such that you needed the owner's permission? Well, I don't believe it's just the state of Wisconsin, but the only three ways to search someone's apartment would be with permission, with a search warrant signed by a judge, or uh, in exigent circumstances. Say you walk up to a house and you hear a woman inside screaming for help and you kick in the door. Um, so if Jeffrey Dahmer would have said, no, I'm not going to give you permission to search, we would have gone, obtained a, a district attorney and a judge and had the judge sign a search warrant for the apartment. We use permission a lot. Uh, uh, I believe police officers around the country use permission a lot to search places. Um, so in this situation, I think at this point, Jeffrey Dahmer had decided that the jig was up. Uh, he was caught. He was almost relieved that he was caught and uh, he readily signed Pat Kennedy's book and gave us permission to search. When you observed the head in the refrigerator when you first arrived after you asked Dahmer if he needed anything or how you could assist, um, was there anything else in the refrigerator by way of edible, normal human food? Not very much. Uh, I haven't looked at the picture lately. Um, but it, there wasn't much in there. Mm -hmm. When you were, you said the inventory of all of the separate identification cards, the trophies, if you will, the collection of personal effects of Dahmer's myriad victims, when those were being inventoried, as you were going through them, what was going through your mind as you went through and saw so many different unique driver's licenses, ID cards of so many different unique men? Well, my whole goal at that point was to try and identify who these people were. Um, as a homicide detective and a church-going man, um, I long believed that when I got to the scene, the victim is already pronounced dead. There's nothing that I can do to bring them back. Um, what I can do is uh, conduct a thorough investigation and give peace to the victim and peace to his family. Um, so as I um, I'm finding these pieces, I'm thinking these are all families that we can reach out to with the worst news ever, but we can at least give them some closure. More importantly, as I was looking at inventorying all those pieces, was trying to put the story together. Uh, again, it was going to take medical doctors and psychiatrists and people to tell me what some of this stuff was. 
um, especially the prescriptions that you can't read the doctor's handwriting anyways. Um, but to put the story together as to all the different appointments Dahmer either had or didn't show up for, and then where he got all of these medications from. Um, his early victims um, were uh, put to sleep with uh, medication, with sleeping pills um, that he had been prescribed. I didn't know that at the time, um, but that was the important part of taking each piece of paper and making it a separate uh, item on the inventory so that people would know what we all found. Can you describe for listeners, you sort of, you described why the blue barrel sort of became infamous in the way of its horrific contents. Can you describe why the black table was infamous? The Polaroid pictures were very specific. Uh, Jeffrey had removed the fish tank several times through his uh, three and a half years of terror on Milwaukee streets. And he would pose his victims in different shapes, different sexual poses that he would uh, appreciate um, and then take pictures of them on that black table. And then you mentioned how the inventory process took days. How long was that search of the apartment that you just described, going from room to room and identifying or, or seeing, observing for the first time the contents of each respective drawer and closet and essentially what was a chain of horrific discoveries. How long did that take? You know, people watch TV shows and uh, police stories and they finish a, a whole investigation in, in one hour, including commercials. Um, remember I said I started at midnight uh, I didn't leave Jeffrey's apartment till about 6 p.m. that day. Um, there were other detectives that came in after me, but by that time we had most everything, dressers, uh, the boxes of acids, the things that I really, really wanted to get a hold of um, removed and taken to the police administration building. Uh, we did recover the sofa, the carpeting, um, the toilet and the traps in the bathroom, given what people were saying in the hallways. Now, we, this is 18 hours later, people, neighbors are talking about hearing the toilet in Jeffrey's apartment flushing and flushing and flushing and flushing. And what he was doing at the time was taking the melted down pieces of bone from the blue barrel and flushing them down the toilet. So we took all of that stuff so after I left at 6 p.m., there were still detectives there that were collecting some of the some of those very unique extra pieces. When you were observing his collections of trophies and body parts, um, pushing aside again the um, just the sadistic and horrifying nature of that discovery, did you feel or did you observe that he was? organized. As you described the sizes of bones collected together, etc., did it strike you that he was an organized sadist with this collection? I have investigated a lot of homicides since this, um, eight more years of it as a detective, and, and a lot of our crimes of hate and crimes of, of panic and things are just strewn about. 
Um, yes, I would say Jeffrey was very organized. Um, he enjoyed going through his trophies for his own sexual uh, pleasures, um, laying them out on the black table, um, just holding them in his hands. Uh, he talked about that uh, in many of his interviews. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. Even just hearing the, the story and, and hearing about your discoveries, you know, I frankly feel nauseated. Um, you mentioned gagging at, at a minimum at the smell that had permeated the mattress. Um, what, what other physical reactions did you and or the other detectives um, feel or go through during that searching process? I know that police officers care. I cared. Uh, my partner, Jim DeBacanair, was uh, an excellent detective. He was a, a, vet, a Vietnam veteran. Um, we cared about these victims. Um, I don't know that the apartment itself, once we determined you know, what it was and what we were going to be dealing with, I don't know that that bothered me as much as the media, local and national media, um, that ripped up my police department for their views of how investigations had gone in the past and why Dahmer was out on the street at all. Um, I come from a very blue family. I have four, I'm sorry. I have four family members that are, that were on the police department at the time. Um, one of them we lost in July of 2018 um, on duty, but uh, all my life, um, fishing, hunting, um, cops work very unusual hours. So who do you hang around with? Who did my dad hunt and fish with was other cops because that's who was available on those you know middle of the week days. Um, so I'm, I don't believe that the scene inside the apartment hurt as much as um, the media coverage. And I could say it was local, it was national um, and worldwide. Uh, later on, after the scene was secured and locked up and we were done, um, I took many phone calls at my desk from law enforcement all over the world. I remember one call from France um, where they were trying to get a, a missing um, of a gay man that had been in the United States that they thought, well, maybe he'd been in Milwaukee seeing if they could get their uh, missing person identified as a Dahmer victim. Um, so uh, the coverage was obviously worldwide and uh, um, I think that's what hurt the most. I'm so sorry for your loss. If you're able, can you share a little bit more about why then you know that you talked about the media essentially unfairly or inaccurately covering decisions that law enforcement had made um, regarding Dahmer's priors. Is that something that you're comfortable explaining or going into a little bit in more detail for listeners? Well, I know that um, I have his arrest record in front of me, and I know that he had a number of minor contacts with the police after he returned to Wisconsin. You know, he was born in West Dallas, Wisconsin, back in 1960. And after the military, he moved back 
uh, to Florida and then Bath, Ohio, and eventually in December of 1981, uh, he moved back to Milwaukee and moved into his grandma's house back in West Dallas. In the years after that, he had a couple of disorderly conduct contacts. Um, he was arrested one time at the state fair for urinating in public, and it wasn't until 1988, which was uh, just three years before this all came to fruition, that uh, he was arrested for a sexual assault of a young uh, Asian boy. That was his first criminal arrest. And, you know, we're not in 2023. This was back in 1988. And the judge gave him one year at the House of Correction and five years of probation for a sexual assault of an of a underage boy. One today could could really look back on it and say, you know, doggone it, judge, you know, he should have got 10 years for that, um, but he didn't. And the judge can feel however he wants to feel. Um, judges across the country have a responsibility um, of fairness and playing by the rules, but I believe they have a responsibility to the public to keep us safe. With that, looking at it, I believe Jeffrey Dahmer sexually assaulting a stranger, a boy under the age of 16, 17, I think he should have went to prison for some time. And had that happened, uh, he wouldn't have been on the street between 1988 and July 1991 to kill 16 people. That night that you were there in the apartment, the phone kept ringing. Can you describe what happened next? Well, we were in the apartment going through, taking notes, taking notes, documenting everything, where it was, uh, where it measured in the room. Not only do we take notes of what it is, but we also did a diagram uh, close, close to as much as we can with tape measures, trying to figure out how far things were. So when I redraw a map of the room, uh, it's fairly accurate. And the phone started to ring. As I recall, it was probably around 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, sun was just starting to come up. Um, the phone's ringing and ringing, and then it stops, and then it would ring again, and it would stop. And finally, the third or fourth time, I just picked it up because it would never stop ringing. And I just picked up the phone and says, Detective Dubas here. And the man on the other end of the phone identified himself as Lionel Dahmer. Said that he had been watching the morning news and that he believes he saw his son's apartment building on the news, and he wanted to call and see if his son Jeffrey was all right. Um, we had a polite conversation. I told him that I was in Jeffrey's apartment. Obviously, I answered his phone, um, and that Jeffrey was all right, that he wasn't hurt, injured in any way, um, but that he had been taken down to the police station and he was talking to a detective at that time. Um, I gave him some contact information, how he could get a hold of me, uh, get a hold of the police department, and uh, that was pretty much the end of the conversation. We didn't talk about what I had found. Uh, we didn't talk about what we were looking at or what Jeffrey might have been uh, arrested for. I just let him know that he was downtown and that he was uninjured. And that was what he really was concerned about. Mm -hmm. Can you describe any thoughts you had in that moment or since about um, you know, a father calling to make sure his son is okay? and you being able to say, yes, your son is fine in the same location where 
ultimately the remains of at least 16 humans were found who weren't okay? Well, I know that uh, as I uh, prepared for the uh, documentary on Fox Nation, I um, talked about the fact that I have three sons of my own. And I remember getting a phone call from the police where one of my sons had had an asthma attack and he was taken to the hospital. And I kind of chuckled and said, you know, what's really going on? Um, I make these phone calls. I don't get these phone calls. That sort of ran through my head when Jeffrey Dahmer called, Jeffrey's father called, and speaking to him, and I thought, well, wait a minute, let's go back a second. I think he was scared. I think he was concerned at first that maybe, you know, we were there with this, um, and the national news had it had it pretty well pegged right away that this was, you know, a site of a multiple homicide investigation. And I think he was concerned that Jeffrey was one of the victims. Um, but I think once I told him that he was all right and that he was not injured and he was talking to the detectives, uh, he at least had some peace of mind. Okay. So then what happened, Captain? Sometime around 6 p.m. that day, um, we had everything loaded up, identified, marked. The medical examiner had all of his uh, body parts that he recovered, and uh, we turned the uh, apartment over to the team of detectives that was going to take the rest of the apartment apart and recover items that could possibly be uh, found, have evidence in them. Um, went downtown to the police administration building and I briefed uh, a very few detectives that were going to be involved in this investigation. Uh, you can imagine that uh, everybody with a small badge, as the detectives were always called, we had small badges. Um, everybody wanted to get a piece of it. Everybody wanted to get involved in it. By then, it was all over the media. That's all anybody was talking about. And uh, so we, we really needed to keep the amount of detective involvement to a specific number of people that would have all the information. So early shift, day shift, uh, we briefed those detectives and I think it was somewhere around nine o'clock at night I came home that night um, telling the lieutenants that I wouldn't be in in three hours at midnight to start another shift. But uh, the next morning, eight o'clock, I got back to it and went to the secure facility where all of the dresser drawers and boxes and everything were. Um, and we started going line by line, inventory by inventory, handwriting each piece, sealing it in a, in a paper bag or a plastic bag, whatever was needed. And I think we did that for about three days, 10, 12 hours a day. And during that time, were there additional discoveries or additional conclusions, um, thoughts um, or perspectives that you had? Most of that investigation at that time turned toward Jeffrey's uh, statements to Detectives Murphy and Detective Kennedy based on when he picked these men up, where he picked them up, what they were wearing, um, trying to get them identified. Um, I know that I spent some time running out to houses, talking to families, um, letting them know that we believe that their loved one was involved and was a victim of Jeffrey Dahmer. 
Uh, of the 13 bodies murdered in Milwaukee, um, we had evidence of 11 bodies in Jeffrey's apartment. Um, based on Jeffrey's descriptions of things, there were we identified two victims, but we never found any body parts that we could link to those two victims. I know that uh, I did have opportunity to be a part of interviews of Jeffrey, but um, that was just specifically showing him pictures and asking him if he had uh, if he recognized them. And most of them, and all of them that I showed him, he said no. What was his demeanor like with you? Uh, he was very cooperative, looked me in the face. Like I said earlier, uh, even talking to Kennedy and Murphy, um, Jeffrey Dahmer was happy that, or was pleased that he was caught. The, the turmoil that went on in his head, the pain that he knew he was causing other people, he said that he was glad that it was finally over. Um, so when I interviewed him, and again, it wasn't much of a talking to, it was, do you recognize this person? Do you recognize that person? Might you have been in this town with this person? And uh, that was uh, the extent of my interviews, and, and uh, he, was, he was calm and cooperative. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. During Dahmer's incarceration, he had a lot of conversations with his father, um, Lionel, that you had spoken with that first night in the apartment. Do you have any thoughts you'd like to share on the nature of those that audio that was sort of revealed much later? As a homicide detective on a midnight shift, it was my job many, many, many times to go to a house and notify a family that a loved one had been shot or stabbed or run over or whatever. Um, Talking to Jeffrey's dad uh, was almost like talking to one of those victims' parents. Uh, as much as um, he was receiving terrible, terrible, terrible news, uh, even though he didn't know what it was all about at that time, um, it was going to be bad. And I think, I think he knew it was going to be bad. I listened to the tapes. Um, he's a dad. He. He raised that boy up until the time he went into the army, and um, he's got to love him, and he's got to try and help Jeffrey find a way to deal with what he did, uh, and I think that's what he was trying to do. You can't change it. You just have to um, try and accept it and find peace with yourself. Captain, you went on to have um, a very esteemed career what did this case leave you with? How did it impact the rest of your service in law enforcement? I think it gave me a purpose to treat every investigation as if it was this important. Um, I remember rolling out to a missing 10-year-old boy uh, as a captain. Um, we, on the, the police department, Anything under any child under 12 um, gets a lot of attention. And uh, I had been informed of a missing 10 year old, been missing overnight. There's a sergeant and officers on the scene. And uh, I remember rolling out to it, getting on the scene, grabbing a map. Uh, 
it was a, uh, a grease pen type map that we could start making marks on and drawing squads, searching areas. And with this in the back of my mind, I remember calling the dispatcher and asking for more officers and more officers because we were going to make attempts to find that boy. Um, the sooner the better. The We knew, we know, we know, we know, police departments across the country know that the sooner you look, the sooner you look everywhere, everywhere, the sooner you, you have a better chance of finding someone. And uh, this investigation said, we're not going to walk away. We're not going to we're not going to just do the basics. We, I had 50 officers out there, and we were searching everywhere, every garbage can, every car, every garage, every abandoned house uh, for six blocks. Um, eventually, we found the boy alive. He was next door hiding from his mother because he didn't want to be punished. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, we still brought out all the manpower we could to, to help find that boy. And I think part of that drive to bring that investigation to a, a close came from this, where people thought we weren't looking for these missing men. Um, but it's not unusual for men 23, 25, 30 years old uh, that who aren't married, who don't have a, a wife and children and a job and a house. Uh, it's not unusual for them to leave, to go away, to move off, uh, go visit somebody in another town. And Milwaukee's very close to Chicago, close to Detroit, close to Gary, Indiana, that uh, people often will leave and come back nine months or a year later, and we have missing reports. Part of the issue back then was that the family would greet their loved one when they came back home, this is where you've been, but they never call us and tell us that these people were gone. And uh, so uh, I know that the police department um, was criticized for its lack of looking for somebody who has the right to go away if they want. Now, um, this was a terrible situation, a very unique situation. Um, what Jeffrey was doing was, was horrible, but there really wasn't a whole lot of uh, reason for us to go looking for men. Um, the investigation led us to the uh, bars in Milwaukee that catered to uh, gay men, and there was rumors within those bars of a, a figure, uh, a ghost that would walk away with people from the uh, from from the bars and they would never be seen again, but they really never had a description. They never had a name. They, they didn't even have pictures from the, the security systems that would lead us to where these people were. So I believe that uh, we were doing what we were doing, doing with, it, with a purpose. I think we nowadays we do it with a greater purpose because of Jeffrey Dahmer and these types of investigations. Captain, thank you for your career in service, for the incredible and painstaking dedication that you exhibited on this particular case that meant so much to the families of so many um, and that has captivated a nation for multiple ways for so many years. Is there anything else that you would like to share before we close? I'd just like to say that uh, let the officers out there today know they're appreciated know they're loved tell them to watch each other's back stay safe and to the the people in milwaukee the the big cities the small towns i share with them that the police officers are out there to help 
whether it's a traffic stop and you're not happy getting a ticket, um, but you're getting stopped for a reason. You were doing something dangerous. Uh, or or somebody calling for help. Um, the officers will get there as fast as they can. The officers that are out there care. And uh, I look forward to better days for the citizens and for the police. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.